welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hey ladies, I'm so excited that I have Dr. Jen Gunter with me here, the woman who needs literally no introduction. You should know her. If you don't, please go follow her everywhere. I will put her links down below to this podcast. Dr. Gunter is an OBGYN. She's an author. She is um, a soon-to-be podcaster. She is all the things. Um, So I am so excited to have her on today. She's just come out with, or she is coming out with a brand new book. She just has all the knowledge on all of the things. I am so excited to hear everything that you're up to and ask you some questions on your new book. So welcome, Jen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yes, I'm so excited. We two busy menopause spear ladies just happen to be like (laughs) free at the same time. So wow. Um, We were just talking before we got on about how incredible it is that you have done so many things. And I love how um, from reading your story, you, you wrote the Vagina Bible, which hopefully everyone listening to my podcast has absolutely read. If you haven't, link will also be down below. And then when you were going on tour, you, you kind of fielded all these questions about midlife and at menopause. So what was that really like for you to realize, wow, this is what women really need to know about? Yeah, you know, I was, it was a bit strange in a way because I didn't, I guess, really appreciate the void of information. And possibly some of it was because, you know, I, my, my biggest area is the vulvan vagina. I spent a lot of time in that. But I, I see a lot of women with menopausal concerns, obviously, because that's a big part of vulvar and vaginal health. And, you know, I, I, because I was writing primarily about the vulvan vagina, you know, I wasn't getting asked a lot of questions about menopause, which is absolutely fair. But when I started doing interviews for the book, I think I mentioned to somebody off the cuff that I was on an estradiol patch. And then all of a sudden, that's what the reporter wanted to talk about. Totally, totally derailed everything. And I was like, what? Like, I'm just on the patch. It's not like the way it was spoken about was like I was doing something really cool, like on the steps of the school, like I was smoking some fancy new drug. And I was like, really? And, um, and then, uh, and then when I was on tour that, um, you know, literally, you know, every single question, every single, uh, you know, audience had a question about menopause and, you know, what did I want to know? And, you know, or what, what did I have to tell them? And I was like, I was actually really a little bit shocked. Um, and, you know, because of my age, I've sort of cycled through the, the cycles of menopause, right? You know, I started training pre women's health initiative. I've been in practice post. So, you know, so I, I've been used to the ups and downs and ups and downs of it all. Uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, if people are asking these questions and I've been through it personally and um, I've sort of, I'm both pre and post WHI that, you know, maybe I have some things to write about it. Yeah, you absolutely did. So full disclosure, be jealous. I got Dr. Gunter's new book called The Menopause Manifesto. It is gorgeous and it is full of all of the feels. I also, for those of you who didn't know, I majored in college in women's studies. And so I, the history that you put in here behind so many of the medical concepts blew me away. I was, it was just like, 
it was so incredible that you added that layer. So for example, one of the chapters that I loved was about the evolution of menopause and the biologic reason for grandmothers in our human society. So extrapolate a little bit on that in a way that I'm not doing justice to. Well, yeah. So, you know, when I trained in the 1980s and early 1990s, you know, I was told that we were now experiencing menopause because basically of a benevolent patriarchal society. You know, medicine had advanced long enough that women were now able to live past, you know, the age of their ovaries. And I always thought that was really weird because no one ever says that about men. Oh, like through the benefits of modern society, men are now able to live beyond their erectile function, right? right? So so when I, you know, when I decided to write the book, I thought I really wanted to put menopause in historical context because so many of the negative attitudes towards it come from this idea that it's like a pre-death, you know, that it is the end. You know, you're basically sitting in, you know, death's antechamber, your ticket's punched, and you're just waiting for your exit card. And, you know, maybe you can, you know, do a couple of, you know, useful crafts before you leave. And no, you know, look, I love crafting, but I'm talking about like the way, you know, society views, you know, you know, you're either a lady detective. Right, exactly. And so I really, you know, I had known about the, I had, you know, read about the grandmother hypothesis. And, and so I just thought, I really need to dive into this. Like, we really need to understand why we view menopause as a disease, which is really a remnant of, you know, patriarchal Western medicine, viewing the female body as inferior. And um, basically, like every cell is inferior. And that, you know, menstruation was a way to get rid of, you know, the excess fluid that your inferior body couldn't handle. So obviously in menopause, you're accumulating this fluid. So that's why you're in ill health all the time also because you're a woman. And then, you know, this idea that, you know, we, we didn't all drop dead at the age of 45. I mean, that idea is sort of, you know, ridiculous. Like, you know, there, how could we have evolved if everybody was, all the women were dying early? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Who's raising the children? Right. You made this great point about the twins and life. Oh, I'm going to totally butcher it, but life expectancy. Right. If one twin died at year one of life and the other died at 32, but the average life expectancy was still, I'm totally butchering it, Jen. Yeah. Well, because, you know, we're not really taught this stuff in medicine. So you hear life, you hear the term life Life expectancy expectancy. and you think that's how long most people live, Live. but that's the average, right? Right. And so that means that there's people who lived on the other end and people who didn't make it that far. So, so yeah. So if the average life expectancy is, is, um, of a set of twins is 36, that could mean one twin was born at one twin died at day one and one twin died at the age of 72, or it could mean both lived to be the age of 36. And so, you know, obviously, you know, more people were dying younger earlier, right? But, you know, the when you look at what the capacity is, that's really this concept of, you know, menopause as a driver of evolution. And so a lot of people have spent a lot of time, you know, trying to study the reason menopause exists, you know, because there's only two mammals that have it, us and toothed whales. And things exist for a reason, you know, we, biologically, nothing's sort of a fluke. I mean, think about those birds with those crazy mating dances, right? Like Uh those serve a purpose. They evolve for a reason. And so, yeah, the, the, 
the provide the prevailing theory is that you know grandmothers provided usefulness for their family. So if you think about the burden of reproduction, having a child, and just the you know the the burden of the blood loss, the you know the 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 fact that we're getting a big head through a small pelvis, right? Uh-huh. All uh-huh. these all this carnage, and who's going to run there around? Seven weeks. Yes, ago. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> exactly. And so, who's there to help? with, you know, the, with, with, uh, gathering food for the breastfeeding mom, who's gathering shelter, who's running around looking after the two-year-old and the four-year-old. Well, the grandmother can do that, but she can only do it if she's not burdened with reproduction herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's the grandmother hypothesis is that, you know, somewhere in our ancestral, ancestral history, some women lived beyond their reproduction and they passed those genetics along. And because their families were more successful because they had a grandmother, mm-hmm. they passed that longevity along. Yes. I so love on. the point you made. That's like, we think about men as hunters and gatherers and getting all the food. Right. And then you say, well, that's pretty laborious. Like, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, the, you know, you just think about like men waving the, the dead deer around or something, but it was really the grandmothers who were getting like, all the food and feeding their family. And then when you think about like, even in 2020, I think about my mom just like constantly buying so much food. In fact, my sisters and I always joke about how much food she buys for like, you know, one gathering of like three adults. You'd think she's feeding 80 people, (laughs) you know, but I loved that point and how relevant it still is that grandmothers get the food. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was a point to say that not all grandmothers today are useful. Like if my mother was still like my mother was not a useful grandmother, Um, but, you know, historically, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's good data also to support it. Um, You know, there was research done in the 1980s by Dr. Kristen Hawks and her team that um, they lived with the Hosta women in Tanzania. And, you know, this was a, you know, a culture that had resisted, you know, modern, you know, modern society, you know, and what they found was, you know, grandmother's foraging increases dramatically when their daughters are breastfeeding, when their daughters can't do it. And, you know, 37 hours a week of foraging, that's like a lot of labor that puts this whole, right, exactly. That puts this whole frail, useless sort of older woman sort of thing aside that obviously they were vital. And, you know, what that research also found was, you know, hunting and gathering only contributed 3% of the calories, sorry, hunting, like big game hunting only contributed 3% of the calories. I think that is, like, if you don't think that is mind blowing, and I would say as a women's studies major, and being that all I do is menopause, and, you know, just, just learning this from that chapter in your book, I mean, that is so freaking cool. I think. Yeah, and this. And this is what I wanted, you know, we've all looked, like I said, at menopause as a pre-death, but obviously, you know, our ancestral grandmothers were incredibly vital and active and physically active. Um, And then, you know, you start to think about, well, the symptoms that many women may have today. And you think, oh, I don't know, was all that physical activity protective? You know, what was, you know, obviously we don't know what it was like, but, um, but it does open a lot of, it breaks a lot of myths about what, you know, what we should expect with aging. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, will always inevitably ask me, well, gee, Dr. Hirsch, you just talked about all these things about menopause and symptoms and this, like, what are the 
good things about menopause. And this really just tied everything together. It's like you are one of society's most useful members. And we need you to function and feel your best and thrive. And and certainly if you're having symptoms, that's a good reason to talk through them and rethink what we can do in modern society. But it's really because we need you to feel and function your best for the survival of our species in some big or small way. Right. I think, you know, I think it's really important that, um, you know, we reframe, you know, menopause as, you know, not again, not as the end, uh, just in the same way that, you know, when you transition from childhood to adulthood, you know, you, nobody like this isn't, it's just a change. It's just another phase of life. It's not an end. It's, it's just another part of the journey. And, um, you know, I think that especially in Western society, you know, we, we have been taught to fear menopause because our relevance has been tied to our ovarian function. If you are not um, a young, fertile, you know, woman, then what worth do you, could you possibly have? And it turns out we have a lot of worth. I love it. What was it like practicing pre-WHI and going through the beginning parts of the WHI, I know you talked in the book about how, you know, everyone's like already reading all the headlines and the commercials of, you know, talk to your doctor, your lawyer, right? <laughs> yeah. Your doctor second, talk to your lawyer yes, first. Yes, exactly. Tell me what that whole, and you know, now we're kind of the pendulum is swinging again. And you talked about the, this in your book too. And it's just so awesome. But what was that really like for you as a doctor during that time? What was going through your head? What, you know, what was that like? Yeah, well, so pre-WHI, it really was estrogen for all my friends. Like, and people came in, they made appointments to come and talk about estrogen because everybody spoke about it. And as I said in the book, you know, you can say all kinds of things about big pharma, but when you have a medication that legitimizes a phase of life, it legitimizes it. And just knowing that that's what you do, you go talk to the doctor about it. Like people talked about menopause, I think almost really more. And there was really a less negative attitude about it. And then, you know, during the WHI, oh my God, it was just like, I mean, I, we weren't even prepared that this was coming out. You know, sometimes when there's like seminal studies coming out, you know, you find out, but this was pre-email really, um, or, or, you know, or not maybe pre-email, but p- people weren't on email the way they are now, I mean, right? It definitely wasn't like a... a- a tweet about it or something, there was, right? Is it right? And so all of a sudden you're reading in the newspaper the next day that the medication you just prescribed the day before is harmful and going to kill women and it's going to cause breast cancer. And then all, you know, all these professional societies were scrambling to like, to make, you know, make heads or tails of it. And so there was this awful gap for a long time where you didn't know what to tell people because the data hadn't even, it hadn't even been published, right? Like they had a press release. And so you're, you don't even have the data. And so everybody's scrambling. And of course, you know, you start talking about breast cancer and lawyers start, you know, coming into play. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, it's, it really created this vacuum and, you know, for those of us who were very comfortable with estrogen before, as soon as the professional societies kind of were able to start, you know, putting things together, I felt a lot more comfortable sooner. But, you know, imagine someone going through their residency during the WHI, all of a sudden, you know, for your, like, because this lasted for quite a while, you know, for your whole four years of training, you're taught to fear estrogen. 
So then when you get out and practice, how do you undo that? And so I think one of the forgotten legacies of the WHI is we've got a couple of generations of doctors who really fear hormones. Absolutely. As I teach residents all the time, and I'll say, have you ever seen hormone therapy scribed, prescribed besides for vaginal estrogen? They'll say, no, they've never seen systemic hormone therapy prescribed, be it internal medicine residents who should arguably also know how to do it, OBGYN residents and family medicine doctors. And it's crazy. And I lecture on the WHI all the time, but I certainly wasn't a physician during that time. And inevitably when I do a talk, you know, I'll always have the doctor in the back who's, you know, a few decades older than me. And he's <laughs> like, I had my wife on estrogen and I didn't take her off. And this validates all the things I, you know, and, um, but what a confusing time. And, and my colleagues would always tell me, you know, Heather, you, you can't imagine the, like nothing like that that kind of came from the media, it, it changed physicians so, so strongly like that. And, and you can't imagine what that was like, because you weren't really around during that time. I, mean, I was just, yeah, it was headline after headline. And I think that, you know, pre WHI, we were really, obviously, estrogen was being sold for everything. And that's also a problem, right? Like, you know, I think this idea, like, you know, that it was overhyped in many ways. And, you know, this concept that every person needs it or that, you know, that just, you know, literally estrogen for all my friends is, is probably not great. Uh, because, you know, it's, you know, there are many ways to treat symptoms. And, but I think another issue with this whole WHI and how we then got into all this awful issue with compounding hormones is we didn't have any other treatments, right? And that's one of the downsides of everybody thinking estrogen is for everything. We didn't, there was no room then to come for, you know, for example, non, you know, um, you know, SNRIs or gabapentin or other medications to help hot flushes, right? Like not everybody can take estrogen. So, you know, we were sort of, when it was estrogen for everybody, we were also neglecting, you know, that, that group of women. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we're swinging now to sort of a good medium. Right. Like a more individualized approach as opposed to right. all or none. And how did you see the compounding industry grow? Because I, we both are definitely on the same page. On this. We're both very vocal about it. And uh, it's very fascinating when um, somebody who's arguably probably not a medical professional or scientist or otherwise definitely starts to argue with me about why not use compounded hormones. But I'd, I'm just, I have goosebumps. I just want to know all the, you know, I want the tea. You know, what was it like seeing the rise of the compounding industry and how do you combat either um, your patients' questions or, you know, questions in general? I want to say trolls, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> one, okay. So what, what, what was it, what's, what's it been like to watch that, to see women's vulnerability uh, turn into harm to their bodies and, you know, yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of the blame should squarely go on Christiane Northrup's shoulders. I'll be real honest about that. 
Um, and, uh, but again, when there was a gap in medicine and no one's talking about menopause and she was, but you know, and we all know now she's a full on QAnon conspiracy theorist and she's always been anti-vaccine. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there was definitely, so I researched a lot of this sort of history of these sort of like, you know, the topical progesterone scams and all this stuff. And, you know, it's been, it's been percolating. I know, right. You know, it's been percolating since the 1970s, early 1980s all invented by doctors who've never published anything, right? Who aren't even OBGYNs, who like really have no, you know, no knowledge of this. And, you know, the guy who popularized topical progesterone is a family doctor and you know, he passed away years ago. And when you read his theories, it's like a fever dream. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> But people caught on to this, and um, you know there was the tagline that um, that that Premarin was you know horse hormones, you know not um, not human hormones. So good for horses, not good for humans. You know, well, I mean, Taxol, which is a treatment for breast cancer. What are we going to say? That's good for trees and not for for humans, right? Like that makes yeah. right, like like a drug is a drug. It works or it doesn't. You know, and so this sort of you know, crossover between sort of like natural compounding stuff had been sort of in there in the fringe, but I'd, I don't think I'd met anybody on it until the WHI. And of course that created that space. And when you have all these providers saying, oh, well, look, our hormones weren't, weren't, in, weren't in that study. So of course they're safe, uh, you know, and people believe it because, you know, one, they use these God words to market their terms, like pure, clean, and natural, right? Purity Body culture words. identical. I mean, what's yes. more right? I know it's not even bioidentical. That's the thing. It's like, it's not even, but it doesn't matter. And when you tell patients, you've probably had this in the office. Well, I'll say, well, you know, bioidentical is just a marketing term. And they're like, oh, it's like you told them humorous isn't a word. Yeah. Mine's blown. They're like, yeah. Yeah. It, Right. It's a slang term made up by maybe Suzanne Summers or whomever, or she made oh, it popular. But. Yeah, she popularized it. Like, but Christiane Northrup had it. It's, it's been circulating around. Um, different people, I think, claimed the origins for it, like in the early 1980s, mid-1980s, but that was always very fringe. Um, so yeah. And no, I mean that reactions when you tell people what this stuff is, or, you know, I just took a big deep dive into topical progesterone and people are just like, they're, they get so angry about it. I mean, you've been sold a scam. It's a scam. It can't absorb. What are you talking about? And it's so, but this is all the legacy of the gap of the WHI. Yeah, it is. It, it, it very much reminds me of reproductive rights in the sense that if you take something away that women need, and I always say, I, I understand where, how you got down the rabbit hole. You, you identified that something didn't feel good and you needed to feel better. But if the physicians and the doctors don't know what they're talking about, you're going to find the answers yourself. And it's not great on the other side. And it, yeah, yeah it comes from that gap, that huge gap. Yeah, I mean, if you're, so you have these huge gaps in medicine that, you know, you and I are both trying to fill, right, with what we do outside of the office. And if you really wanted to help women with your new novel treatment, you would publish quality studies. That's what you would do if you really wanted to help people. Or not uh, uh, financially benefit so immensely, right? I mean, right. not the doctor. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I'm always... 
Um, patients will come to me all the time to come off their, say, pellet injections. Oh, oh my God. Pellet, we could do a whole show on that. We could do a whole show. We will have to get together after this. Part two is Yeah. And um, so they will come to me to get off their pellets. And I will, you know, often kind of just ask off the cuff, like, how much has this been costing you? Oh. And certainly you all know, but I mean, hundreds to several thousand dollars every three months, which mm-hmm. goes to show how vulnerable women are in this scenario where, right, society has told us that we serve no evolutionary purpose after menopause. Society has tied us to being youthful. And yet doctors don't know what to do for us. I mean, what a, what a mess. Yeah, absolutely. I think the big, you know, the common theme is the inability to talk about it, right? And also the fact that, like, how many, when you look at the media, how many women age appropriate women do you really see, right? So when you go to the movies, the 60-year-old man is partnered with a 28-year-old, right? You know, when you watch the TV show, there, you know, you, like, it's everything is geared around this sort of, this sort of straight male gaze, if you will. Mm-hmm. Even to how, and I mentioned this in the book, how women die on camera, right? They either die of breast cancer, maybe leukemia, or domestic violence or murder, car accident, tragedy. They don't actually ever die from the number one cause of death, heart disease. No. So you would be, you would never fault a woman for not knowing that that was important because you never see it reflected anywhere. You're, you are absolutely right. I, I, I really honestly really love how much research you did um, in writing this book. What was that process like? Did you, did you just hunker down and get out the history books? Oh, um, because it's, it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, so, you know, I always knew the medical part that I wanted to write, you know, sort of the, the part that, you know, that, you know, you know, all of that stuff, right? So all of the medical prescribing, the scanning hormone tests, I always knew I wanted to, you know, get into all that. But, you know, when I saw, I really wanted to figure out like how we got here, not only from a, you know, the evolutionary standpoint, but the history of hormone prescribing, all of that, you know, and I start with the very first, you know, case report of hormone prescribing. And so I, I ordered all kinds of books from rare book dealers. I have, um, I have a couple of books now. I have Edward Tilt's book on, um, you know, change of life from like 18, whatever, 30 something. I have a copy of that. Um, it's amazing what you can find um, on Google books. You know, the very first um, dissertation on menopause from the early 1700s. I found a copy of that online in Latin and wow. got it translated. Um, De, um, De Jardin's book on menopause and his original dissertation. I got his dissertation online, got a copy of the book, um, had it translated. And so, um, you know, I called in a lot of favors for people that I know. Uh, and, um, you know, so I really wanted to read those words so I would know. And then, you know, you can get um, uh, back issues of, you know, British Medical Journal, the New England Journal from the 1800s online. And so I, I, I read through from the American Journal of OBGYN uh, 
probably the 1920s, I read through multiple, multiple, multiple articles, just the, anything. So I would download the PDF for like the whole year for like 1920 to 21. And I would put in a, put in for the search term in the PDF for, you know, menopause or ovary. And then I would read all those articles just to get like the flavor of it. Um, and then I ordered, um, you know, so I talk about some of the original therapies like Thielen. I found a vial and I ordered it um, from Etsy. Get from Etsy? Yeah, because I wanted to hold it. I wanted to know what it was like. Yeah. And you know how I talk about Lydia Pinkham's tonic? Uh-huh. I found a bottle online and I ordered it, like an old one from the 1800s, because I wanted to like hold these things so I could sort of you be in that mindset. Around. That is next level. Yes. That's so can I, t- well, so can I tell you, so now I have all this stuff. I want to open a menopause museum. <gasps> I just got goosebumps. I mean- I- yeah, I want to open them up. So I have enough actually in my house to do like a mini museum. So I'm going to set it all up in a corner and put it on virtually, first of all. Um, and then, you know, maybe one day I can get a museum to sort of do it as like a traveling exhibit or something. But you have all these old musty textbooks and I have the Thielen and I have the Lydia Pinkham's tonic. And I've just started accumulating, um, you know, all these things that I bought and, uh you know, I wanted to know the words that were used so I could like appreciate how things have changed or maybe how they haven't. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I love, I love how you break down so much stuff in your book and you really provide so much education and resource and background for all the women who, who want to know all the things that we sort of take for granted that we know so well, because we, you know, do this all the time and and I do this day in and day out, but I, I really, um, now, now I'm even more appreciative of like how far you went to teach us a lot of the history of this, because I think knowing where you come from, as cheesy it sounds, really helps you to know where we're going. Yeah, I was really struck someone when I said I was writing about menopause, you know, back in a week, over a year ago, I guess, um, somebody tweeted to me and I wish I'd saved the tweet where she said there's no culture of menopause and it feels lonely. And that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wish I could thank that person because I don't remember who it was, but it's just one of those things you read and it sticks with you. And so I wanted to show what the culture, like give your the cultural history, um, at least from a Western standpoint. And it's also really interesting that, you know, from an Eastern medicine standpoint, you know, everything people believe now about, they say, oh, well, I'm going to do whatever acupuncture for my menopause or whatever. This is all stuff that's been imparted by Western medicine onto Eastern medicine because they didn't view menopause as, as you know, it was just aging, you know? Right, right. right. So... Wow, that's so fascinating. Do you talk in your book about how it was really common practice back in the day, you do, to remove the ovaries when women had hysterectomies? Oh, yeah. So, you know, that was very common even, you know, when I was a resident, you know, that, um, you know, you're going to have surgery, you may as well have it out because of ovarian cancer. Right. And, you know, I was training around the time of, you know, you know, or maybe maybe I was just out of training at that time, but you know, Gilda Radner's death from ovarian cancer and celebrities have that huge impact. And ovarian cancer, of course, is super scary. But you know, the answer to preventing you know a less common cancer isn't to give every take everybody's ovaries out and not only make them miserable, but give them heart disease. You know, like right. like it can't be about that. Um, right. And so, right. but sadly, even today, I mean, 
I'm sure you still encounter women and you're like, wait, you're 41 and you had your ovaries taken out? Like why? Like, and it, it wasn't like they had stage four endometriosis and they had this big in-depth discussion about what they were going to do. It was just, you had fibroids and you had your ovaries out. Yeah. Cause you were going to have, cause they were going to die anyway. Just because. Yeah. Just because. We were there. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's stunning to me because you don't really get much more money for doing it. It's not like it's, it's not like there's an extra $10,000 in it. You know what I mean? So that must just be like how ingrained it is. like this bad knowledge. This, on, this... Yes. While we're on this topic, cause I have Jen with me. <laughs> Why? What? How? What is with the things of people doing pap smears every year and pap smears on women who've had hysterectomies for benign reasons? You know, failure to follow guidelines and my, making money and fear. I think it's all those things. So first of all, if you've had your cervix out, you don't like need a pap smear unless it was excluding people who had cervical cancer. So taking those people out of the mix. Yeah. If you had a hysterectomy out for what we call a benign reason, you're done. You're good to go. That's it. You can forget about it. But people still do it. I mean, it's ridiculous that, I mean, and this isn't new. I mean, when I was a resident in the nineties, we knew this wasn't needed. So this is not brand new information dropping from the heavens. Mm -hmm. The, the failure to sort of move back on the pap smear guidelines, I think is this combination of bringing people into the office. But I think it's also, you know, I hear you hear case reports from people saying, oh, I had this patient who had, you know, three normal pap smears in a row. And then the next year she's got cervical cancer. Well, of course they're outliers and screening guidelines don't actually account for that, which sucks, but, but it's true. And you know what? A cancer that develops that rapidly is that's not what pap smears are designed to pick up. That's probably not an HPV related cancer. You know, pap smears aren't designed to pick up the weird clear cell carcinomas of the cervix and the neuroendocrine tumors, these really weird cancers, that's not what pap smears are a screening tool for. So I think it's also this sort of lack of understanding that there's different kinds of cervical cancer. Yeah. It's, it's another example of how powerful the media's effect really is on the, de the decision-making of, of physicians, which trickles down to our patients and our, and our women. I think also something that's not discussed enough is also how often OBGYNs are sued. And I don't think that's not an excuse, but if you're getting sued, you know, if you've been sued three times for something that, you know, like what, like there's no way you could prevent that. Mm -hmm. You know, you people, I mean, we know that practice patterns change. And so you think about, you know, you, you might, you, and you get named in a suit that you had nothing to do with. And so again, it's not an excuse, but I think that that's the merit, you know, there's so many issues with the American medical system and that, you know, that's just one part of it. That's just one part of it. So thinking about the timeliness of your book, you know, and sort of the pendulum of, all right, I'm going to let my doctor just take my ovaries out. I'm on the table and here I am. Are you seeing more women asking questions and starting to, to question the things that used to just sort of be, well, my doctor said I should do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I do think so. I think there's a lot more people who are engaged and empowered and that's wonderful. Unfortunately, the flip side is a lot of people are not appropriately empowered because they've got disinformation, right? So if someone comes in and says, you know, I want to be on, you know, some triest 
mixed up with DHEA and testosterone. And they, they believe that that's the right thing for them. For, and then when you explain to them that, well, it's actually not. Um, and that, you know, if they really want to protect themselves against osteoporosis, a compounded topical cream is not the way to do it. Um, and then they get really angry. And uh, some, sometimes they're shocked and they're like, oh my gosh, thank you for telling me. But, you know, it's hard because someone spent all this time doing this research and you have to explain to them in a way that, that doesn't invalidate their search because it's good to search. Um, but yeah, there's predators out there and that's, that's part of the problem. I know. Absolutely. Well, I, I absolutely thank you so much for giving us some of your amazing wisdom and you know, it's, it's fun to be like a lifelong learner. That's what we always say when we're going to med school, right? We want to be lifelong learners, but like you right. really took it to the next level. And <laughs> I'm so excited you did because you've blessed us all with all of your hard work. Before we go, any other last thoughts on women's health and feminism and all the things you've been doing for the last year? How do you summarize that in like 60 <laughs> seconds? Well, uh, uh, don't believe the patriarchy for anything. Um, you're living in a system designed by the patriarchy. And so many of the things that you believe about your body, you know, please keep an open mind to it. And my final word is you cannot get health information from someone selling you a product. So, you know, why would you get information about bioidentical hormones from a compounding pharmacy? Would you get information about antidepressants and depression from uh, the company who makes your antidepressant? No, you would go to an independent source. You know, you when you say it, it makes so much <laughs> sense. Well, thank you so much. So I'm going to link all of Jen's stuff down below. I'm sure you already follow her, but if you don't and you're living under a rock, please definitely check it out. And um, we're also so there for your new podcast. I cannot wait. There's lots of traffic here. And it's like picking back up again as I'm driving to work, you know, the downsides of us all getting vaccinated. There's more people out and about, which we like to see. So I'm so excited to listen in. Thank you, Dr. Gunter, so very much. Her new book, Menopause Manifesto, is coming out the end of this month, which is May 2021. And thank you guys so much. If you like the show, please give it a star or review, and I will see you next week for a new episode. Bye, everyone.